Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good evening. I'm going to, uh, rather than preach the message that I was going to preach last week, remember, I don't know if you remember last week, I was working on something from Psalm 119, Pastor Mike came into my office and started jabbering about everything he'd uh, heard up in Michigan, and he was obviously fired up, so I asked him to uh, share that with you all, and it was great, but rather than get back to the message that I was working on last week, I'm actually going to springboard off of where Pastor Mike left off last week, and remember, not exactly, huh? Well, no, you didn't leave off, but toward the end of your message, you were talking, Pastor Mike, about... uh, a testimony you'd heard about a couple of surgeons. One was a, an eye surgeon who practiced slicing the skin off of thousands of grapes until he could do it precisely and easily, building up this muscle memory before he ever operated on a human eyeball. And also a brain surgeon who practiced standing over, you know, keeping in mind that the operations he would be doing would sometimes take six, eight, ten hours would practice operating on, I don't know what he used, uh, cadavers or, or whatever else, but before he ever set foot to operate on a human brain, he practiced and practiced and practiced these things uh, and perfected his technique. And what I want, where I want to start, I guess, is by pointing out, I don't know these guys, I don't know who they are, uh, but let's just assume, because they could have been, perhaps are, the most knowledgeable experts in their field. Maybe the eye surgeon knows more about the human eyeball and what could go wrong with the eyeball uh, and more about how to fix it than any 10 other eye surgeons combined. Maybe he has that much knowledge. And maybe this uh, neurosurgeon has these, uh, pa- these neural pathways memorized and the brain mapped out. He knows exactly what every square inch of the brain does and what part of the body it's responsible for. He is a walking textbook. But with all of that knowledge, they didn't operate until they had committed their bodies to the task. Mastering, again, that muscle memory, technique, mastering the application of that knowledge. It wasn't, they don't just read a book, graduate school, and step into the operating theater. They had to practice what they had learned. I'm remembering also... Uh, what I've read about the Mercury astronauts. I don't know how much you know about their training. Uh, But they went through what's called a graded series of exposures. Operant conditioning. Those of you who took a Psych 101 probably remember the name B.F. Skinner, uh, who was into operant conditioning. And this is what they did, was they tried to put them through everything that they would experience in spaceflight before they ever got on top of the rocket. And they were able to simulate the, the, the G's that they would pull when they were in the, by putting them on this, uh, you know, spin them around at, at high rates of speed. And they would take them up in these parabolic arcs in, in, in uh, airplanes to get them used to the feeling of weightlessness. They would spend, they spent hundreds of hours lying on their back in this Mercury console, exactly like the one they would be flying, throwing switches and watching lights and practicing, and they would pipe in the, the, the sound of rockets and everything so that they would experience nothing novel on the day of the flight. 
so that by the time they got up on the rocket, they had been through it hundreds of times already. And uh, one, one of them even commented was uh, the, the, rocket, the actual flight wasn't as real as the simulation. It seemed fake. But they, one of the things they did was uh, they tried to imagine every possible thing that could go wrong. Uh, a certain light would, would, would come on and they would have to address the, the, whatever this light indicated. Uh, oxygen sensor, whatever, uh, fuel, uh, fuel pressure, any of this stuff. And they would, they would do what they could to fix it. And after a certain number of tries, they had to hit the abort handle. And then this escape rocket would pull the, pull the capsule free from the main rocket. And it said they did this so many times that after a while, they thought they were training for an abort rather than a launch. They just tried to anticipate everything, but they went through it so many times that it, was just, it just became automatic. All of this for a 15-minute flight. Because the first flights were suborbital. And I'm sure that modern astronauts go through that to a degree. Test pilots, you know, uh, the fighter pilots. Um, anything that takes a great deal of skill and involves a great deal of danger, you're not going to take somebody who graduates basic uh, officer course in, in the Air Force and then throw them in the, in the seat of, a, of an F-15 or whatever, whatever it is, F-22s, whatever they're flying today, right? They start off with prop planes and then subsonic trainer jets and things like that, they, these graded series of exposures before they put them in these cutting-edge machines. Uh, it's the same with any military training. It's the same with any job training. I'm, you know, the, the, some of it was silly, just the drill and ceremony, the way you stand, all this stuff, they, they drill, 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 practice, practice, practice. You do it so many times that no matter how much they threw at you at the beginning and how overwhelming it seemed on the first day, by the end of those, those weeks, it was all automatic. It was muscle memory. You could do it in your sleep. I had a friend at Canaanland who was a, uh, actually a special forces guy, Green Beret, and... Um, he was at Canaan land because he came back from a drug interdiction uh, mission. And uh, he'd been gone for a number of weeks. And when he came back, he found, uh, caught his wife in the middle of having an affair. And he marched straight out to where they had collected the drugs from their mission and stuffed as much cocaine up his nose as he could. <laughs> and wound up being uh, kicked out of the army and, and landed with us at Canaan land. But he had some great army stories. And he told us that one of the things that he had to do, I don't know if, he was a weapons guy, and I don't know if they all had to do this, but the Special Forces course is several months long. It's a very long, uh, knowledge-intensive course. It's not as physically demanding as, like, ranger school or something like that, but they become specialists. And one of the things they had, uh, at the time anyway, was he called it the piles test, where they would dump out a bag or a bucket onto this table, and what they had was a pile of weapons parts. There might be ten different weapons but all the parts are mixed. And they had a limited amount of time to sort it out and assemble these weapons. I can't even imagine. But I couldn't imagine taking apart my M16 and putting it back together the first time they taught me how to do that. And by the end of just eight weeks of basic training, I could do that in my sleep. I learned it so well. I haven't, I haven't touched an M16 in 30 years, but I bet I could do it today. Muscle memory. But this guy, same thing. He had done each one of these individual weapons so many times and so often for so many hours that he didn't have any trouble sorting these things out. And, uh, and that's all pretty exciting stuff, oorah stuff. But I can remember getting trained to work in the receiving department at Sam's. 
the little Telzon machine and the things that have to be scanned in. There were so many things that for a week I felt like I'm never going to get this. There's so many steps that you have to go through to check in a box that comes off the UPS truck. You don't just open it up and throw it on the shelf. It's not how it works. Everything's got to be accounted for. Uh, But I got good at that too so that I got to train other people at it. Every one of you has probably had a job at some point where at first the amount of information you had to learn to do this job well or to progress seemed overwhelming. And then you could look back at some point, weeks later, months later, years later, and say, this is, I've been doing this so long, I can't even remember how it ever seemed hard in the first place. I remember the first time I changed a diaper. I got really good at that. Sports skills. What, this is why, why do they do so many drills? Why do they, do, in basketball, in football, I mean, ball handling, all this stuff, they train, they train you to, you know, obviously I'm not an athlete, I don't have a lot of stories. Mike, get up here and take over this part of the, uh, the, part of the sermon. But, you know, I do remember they teach you to dribble without looking at the ball. You know, do all these things, switching hands and all this stuff without ever looking at the basketball. Training where to move your eyes and how to do these things. And you could, you could think of a thousand different examples, but again, it's practice, practice, practice. Drill, drill, drill. What am I getting at? Well, let's start with James chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, where James writes, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man, observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. Let me look at another passage here really quick. In Second Peter chapter 1, is this what I want to look at first? No, 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 First Peter chapter 5. First Peter 5, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever. Amen. Let's take this in stages. Worst case scenario. You find yourself under attack. Sickness. Whatever. And you don't know the word. But somehow, in a moment, I guess it could be worse. I could think of a worst-case scenario than this, but let's see, for, for our purposes tonight, the worst-case scenario is you're under attack, you don't know the word, but somehow you become convinced somebody shares something with you that, you know what, the Bible is the key. God's word is the key. But you're starting in a hole because you don't know the word. You have to learn the word. You have to learn what God has said about you, your rights, your circumstances, his salvation, his power, right? Uh, you've got a long way to go. Uh, Second stage would be you find yourself under attack, but you have heard the word. You have even studied it. So you know your ground. But you have never had to apply it to yourself before. 
You've learned it. And sometimes the response, and this is not a bad thing, by the way. You find yourself fighting something, and so you begin to soak up the word. Surround you, you get listen to CDs or tapes or, or uh, just pipe something in on the computer. There's, there's no shortage of good teaching. You probably bring up uh, Living Word Family Church uh, sermon podcast, right? And listen to me, feed your spirit. But you soak this stuff in, and that's good. But all of that, listening to ministers, uh, and, and for that matter, piping in praise and worship, this all falls under the category of hearing the word. And that word tells us that the one who's blessed in what he does is the one who does the word. So how do we do the word in those circumstances? Because doing the word, ah, I know what i got to do. Here's why i got to do the word, and I'll listen to another sermon. I'm going to be blessed because I listened to eight hours of Brother Hagin today. That's not the man who's blessed. Best case scenario, you are a believer, and you look for opportunities every day to speak and apply the word. Now, one way that we can apply the word every day, whether God gives us an opportunity or whether we see an opportunity to, to preach the gospel, whether we see an opportunity to pray for the sick, one way we have, every single one of us, every day, to apply the word in our lives is simple obedience. That's doing the word. And that we're talking about everything. Not just obeying him and sharing the gospel with your neighbor, but obeying him in letting no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Uh, not abusing your neighbor. Loving your neighbor. The, the, the commands that Jesus... Read through the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus said, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Do the word that way. Obedience is the starting point, And it's the highest expression of our faith. Obedience. That's a crucial part of applying the word uh, uh, and doing the word. But, and I know we've talked about this a hundred times, but, you know, uh, I was going to share, put that verse from Second Peter up there. Second Peter 1, beginning in verse 12. For this reason, he writes, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, talking about his body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that, I sh- that shortly I must put off my tent, talking about his imminent death, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. This is Peter saying, here's why I'm writing you this letter. I'm not going to share anything new. I'm going to remind you of the things I know you've been taught, and I'm writing it down so you'll always have a record of this. Not laying out some heavy revy. It's just I'm stirring you up. These are things I know you have heard. You've heard them from me. You've heard them from others. I'm just going to say them again. I'm going to write them down for you. So we can't hear truth too many times. We stir these things up, and sooner or later, we, I, I pray, that it'll stir us to action and doing these things. So uh, back to this. Certainly we obey Super important part of doing the word. But we also, what do we do? How do we do the word? We speak it. We speak healing over our bodies. We speak supply. We speak protection over ourselves. And we do this as a matter of discipline. We don't do it as a matter of responding to a crisis. This is the part I've said a hundred times. Don't wait until you're sick to speak healing over yourself. Don't wait until you're in a financial crisis to speak prosperity over yourself. Right? Don't wait to speak protection until you're heading someplace dangerous. Just claim these things because they're promises of God. 
declare them. It doesn't take long. Build a habit of doing them. And it's important. This is something you got to be careful about because you can do this even if you're not facing a crisis, even if you're not sick. Don't speak healing over yourself out of fear of getting sick. Don't speak supply over yourself and prosperity over yourself out of fear of poverty. That's not what it's about. You're simply celebrating and agreeing. You're confessing. That's what the word confess means, to say together with God. I'm simply saying about myself what God says about me. And we do this, and certainly there's an element of, of, of it simply being proactive against the day that a struggle may come. But guess what? We get in the habit of speaking authoritatively over our bodies, over our finances, over our families, so that when an attack does come, when an attack does come, we know how to do it. You know we jump to the wrong conclusion so many times. Imagine, back to a military illustration, you got a soldier, he's at the rifle range. And, uh, and he's, he's being trained. You, you, know, you, don't, you don't get as much time as you really want, but everybody, you get enough rounds. You get to throw enough rounds out there to qualify. But say this guy really gets in, into it. He sends thousands of rounds downrange. He is an expert. Uh, they're even thinking about making him a sniper. He's a great shot. He can do this. He can load and clean and, and disassemble his weapon blindfolded. He really knows his weapon. And not only that, he knows how to move. He knows, knows how to move quietly, stealthily. He knows he's an expert. He's a pro with the compass and the map. And uh, he knows how to communicate. He knows how to do everything and knows how to do everything well. He has been drilled. And he's in a high-speed unit where they are doing this all the time. There are some ranger units. I'm talking about in peacetime who would spend 300 days a year in the field doing this stuff. Okay, so I mean, so this stuff is absolutely second nature to him. He's the best soldier he knows how to be. I knew a guy, I think I may have told you a story about him in some one context or another. This was one of the best weeks I ever spent in my time with the guard. Was one of the best times I ever spent. It was a couple weeks I went out to California to our mother unit, which was the 7th Infantry Division, Fort Ord, California. Not there anymore. Uh, and we went up into the mountains. And uh, th- this unit I was attached to was a light infantry unit, just like the one in my hometown, and the platoon sergeant was a guy named Steve, Steve Gardner, and a big E7 type, and he had spent time in a ranger battalion, and he was just good at his job. He was so laid back. He just made everything seem so easy. I never saw him get up tight. I saw him choose some squad leaders out. I saw him choose some soldiers out, but I never saw him lose his cool. He just spoke as an expert in everything. And I remember we're having a conversation at one point, and, and we're... <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, I am trying to share the gospel with him, which I eventually got to before we got out of the field. But he said, uh, we were talking about life and death. And he said, yeah, I think about dying. He says, I know, I'm a soldier. He said, but I, I don't worry about dying in a war. I'm too good at what I do. I'll never die in combat. He said, when I die, I'll probably, I'll probably be something stupid, get hit by a truck or somebody cuts me in a bar or something like that. I'm like, well, that's a terrible thing to say, you know. But, and, of course... You can't say you're never going to die in combat, no matter how good a soldier you are, right? Yet at the same time, if I'm going into combat, I want to go with somebody like that, who's so confident about his job and his knowledge that some of that's going to rub off on me, right? Anyway, so you take a guy like this who's trained, trained, trained. It's all, and and got to remember, these were the 80s, peacetime, Reagan years. We hadn't been, this guy was not a combat veteran. He'd been in for long enough to be an E7, so he'd probably been in at that time, I don't know, 14, 15 years. 
spent all that time in high-speed units. He was good at what he did, but he'd never been in combat. But, man, he was trained for it like anybody I ever knew. And there were a lot of guys like that. But then suddenly, what, what happens? War's declared. You find yourself in a combat zone. What do we expect that soldier's reaction to be? Wouldn't it be weird to have him say, what? But I'm good. I'm the best. I trained. I practiced. How can they be shooting at me? What did I do wrong to find myself on this battlefield? I thought if I trained with my weapon and I learned how to fight and move and communicate, that I'd never have to fight. What? This is what you're trained for. This is the whole purpose. A soldier, a sane soldier, would never ask himself, why, if I did everything right, am I in a war? This is the whole point of you being here, soldier. We never want it. But the whole point is to train you so that if you ever have to be there, you're ready. It sounds silly, but you know what? We're the same way sometimes, aren't we? We read the word. We soak it in. We speak. If we're doing it right, and sometimes I I despair. Not despair. Sometimes I'm concerned that we're not doing it right. All of us. I just encourage you to speak the word daily over yourselves. At least speak the word daily over yourselves, your family. And then get bold and speak it over one another. Speak it over the church. Speak it over me. But we do this. We're, we're, we're soaking up the word. We're listening. We're hearers. We know it. And then as soon as a battle comes, what do we think? What did I do wrong? Where, did I go? Where was my misstep? What did I do to allow this in my life? You're under attack. Now, that's not to say we never do anything wrong. Okay? So let's, let's, don't, let's don't use that as a, oh, boy, everything bad happens to me is because the devil hates me more than he hates everybody else. No, we've got to get our heads out of the sand and, and listen to God. Go back to step one. Are we obeying him, right? And let's be humble and admit that none of us does it perfectly. God knows that. We know that. But we are going to have battles. The point is, are you going to be that soldier who has trained and is ready and has fired all those rounds downrange? Have you spoken all those words? Because like then when, it, when the attack comes, what do you do? You do what you always did. Uh, Mike Dell and I were talking just briefly before the service, and we were talking about the book of Daniel. And, that's what, and it popped into my mind. It was a perfect illustration for this, and I didn't even have it in my sermon. But you remember Daniel, right? Daniel and the, the uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're Hebrews who are serving in Babylon under a pagan king, and they did everything right. Daniel especially. Daniel's one of the three that's mentioned in, uh, is it Ezekiel, I think, when, God's, when they're praying, they're praying for, they want an intercessor. They want somebody to come and save the city. And God says, you know, if, if these three men, if Noah, Daniel, and Job were here, they could only save themselves. But these are the three guys he holds up as the most right, as most, the greatest examples of righteousness. And Daniel was doing everything, from everything we can see, he did everything right. And what happened to him? He got thrown in the lion's den. But what did he get thrown in the lion's den for? For doing what he had been doing all along. This edict came down from the king. You know, he was urged on by some people who were jealous of Daniel. And they basically said, hey, king, for 30 days, why don't we do this thing where uh, nobody can pray to anybody except, uh, except to you, your God. Uh, and anybody who's found praying to any other God, will, they get thrown in the, in the lion's den. And the king says, yeah, sounds good. Puts his seal on it, and it can't be undone. 
And then what do they do? Oh, guess what we found out? We just found this out, king. Daniel's praying three times a day to his God in Jerusalem. He sits before the window and prays right toward the city. I hate it as much as you do. If we'd known, we would have never had you sign this edict, but you did, and it can't be undone, so I guess what? What, did we bring him? Yeah, bring him. And he gets thrown in the lion's den. But it wasn't like, this edict was a terrible edict. When it came down, that was not the time Daniel said, oh, no, I'd better start praying and see if God can get me out of this. What did he do? He just went back to doing what he did as a custom. As was his custom, he just went right back to doing it. He was faithful to God and knew that God would rescue him and keep him safe. And he did, didn't he? Shut the mouths of the lions. So, and same way with with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They knew they couldn't bow down before the image Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But these were commitments they had made long before they were in Babylon. So what do we do? We do the same thing. We build these customs. We build these habits. And when, when the attack comes, whatever it is, we just keep speaking it. We're going to come, come to something important here. Don't, don't, don't check out on me. I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping up soon, but there's something real important we're going to get to. Before we get there, it's not just battles. When it comes, I referenced this earlier, when it comes to preaching the gospel, praying for the sick. Or go back, just stop with, with uh, preaching the gospel. If you've been in this church uh, for any number of years, you've heard me give hundreds of altar calls. And most of those altar calls, especially on Sundays, are uh, it, the gospel itself is laid out. You have heard how to at least give the basics of the gospel. Um, so you can do that. Take notes. Memorize these things. And practice it. Practice it. We pray for opportunities, right? We should be praying for opportunities. We've prayed for them corporately. But do we know what to do with those opportunities when we get them? If you're talking to somebody who's sick and invites you to pray for them, do you know how to, prayer, do you know how to pray a faith-filled prayer over the sick? Let me read this passage in 2 Peter again. Or 1 Peter, chapter 5. Let me pick it up here in uh, verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. How does he perfect us? One of the ways is he trains us, he urges us, commands us to practice these things. It includes obedience. It includes doing the things he's told us to do, saying the things he's told us to say. Practice makes perfect. Right? Back to those surgeons. How long before they were good at it? They were smart, they were dedicated, they wanted to do it. They knew everything that had to be done, but they weren't good at it for a while. Pilots, how long, no matter how talented or how gifted or how knowledgeable or smart, they could have, they can understand every inch of that airplane, what makes it go up, down, sideways, roll. But it's a long time before they are a good pilot. Show you something. 
right with this. This is tricky. I didn't have this plan. Oh, man. We'll try it one more time. Oh, man. Try it one more time. See? Now, that was tricky. I didn't have, I, I should have had three balls in here. I decided to learn to juggle when I was working at the grocery store. Actually, actually, I tried to learn to juggle years before that. And every time, because I, I, I I'd seen it, I kind of figured I understood the pattern. But I always tried it with balled up socks. And it turns out that's a really hard thing to learn with because they bounce off your hands. And when I started practicing with oranges in the back room of the store, it was a lot easier, huh? That was the one. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so I learned just that pattern. And once you, and, and when you do it with oranges, tennis balls, baseballs, something that's a little heavier, a little grippier, until that's a very easy thing to do. And then you can do odd-shaped things like that. But try to teach uh, somebody who doesn't really want to learn or somebody with very little patience. I can't do it. I remember I took a drum lesson. I thought I was going to be a great drummer at one time. I just don't have the musical gift that my sister does. So I tried to, I had a set of drums. My parents were encouraging that gift in me. But we were down in Tulsa as a freshman in high school, and the church, you know, there were people who could do things in the church, and so they did, hey, if you want to learn to do this, go to this guy, this, go to this woman, whatever. And this guy was teaching drums, and he was just trying to teach me the basic, whatever, all right, doing one beat with the hi-hat, one beat with the snare, one beat with the bass drum, but all basically the same beat, just you're hitting it at different speeds. Real simple. I can still do that now. That's about as far as I ever got. But that first lesson... I'd try it for about five seconds and say, ugh, I can't do it. Now watch me. Do it this way. And he showed me three or four times. And every time I said, ugh, I can't do it. And he finally stopped and he grabbed my sticks. He says, Scott, stop saying that. If you ever catch yourself saying, I can't do it, the next word out of your mouth just needs to be yet. That's pretty good. I've always remembered that. This... This is the important part. And praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. This is why we continue to lay hands on the sick even when we see someone not get healed. This is why we pray for the lost even when they refuse to accept Christ. Because what? Because the word is right. The word is true. We're going to know the word. Many of us know the word very well. It's not that we're wrong. It's just that we haven't practiced it. We will get it right. We will. And we're going to see it working. And you know what's going to happen once it starts to work? Once we got to see it? Anyway, I'm so not, listen, I'm not trying to paint a dark picture. We've seen it work. It's worked in your life. It's worked in my life. But we're not seeing everything we want to see, are we? Are we? I'm not. I was looking for the story. I wish I could remember what it was. I heard it on the radio, and I just can't remember. I could have sworn it was, uh, had to do with Billy Graham's first sermon, but it might have been somebody else's first sermon. Either way, this was a preacher who went on to become famous. But his first sermon, and, I, and I'll just make, a, make up the, the names here. You'll get the, you'll get the principle. Uh, but it was like uh, Billy Graham was invited to deliver this sermon. He delivers it. He gives an altar call. Somebody asked for a report and said, how did he do? He did okay. He gave an altar call. Only one person answered the altar call. But this 
the person who answered the altar call went on to become a very famous minister. I just can't think of who it was. It was either that or it was a guy who... It wasn't that, though. It was somebody, somebody else, somebody more modern. Uh, so, you, so we start seeing these, we start praying for these things. Wow, well, it doesn't work. Only one person, only one person responded. But when that one person responds and turns into a fireball and starts sharing it with somebody else, you know, you pray for 100 people and one of them gets radically healed, what are they going to do? They're going to start singing the praises of Jesus Christ, aren't they? It, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.